Hi there, this is Ken Roundy, and I am back with David Batman Brown. Uh, good to have you back, David. Good to be back. How many times have we done this now? Eight or nine. <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly enough, we're uh, closing in on Podcast 100. I should probably count. It seems like that's a big step. It's uh, pretty cool. I, I, didn't th I didn't know if this project would go this far. So, a lot of fun. Introduce today's uh, first introduce yourself, and then if you wouldn't mind, introduce today's topic. So I'm Dave, and you probably have heard my voice if you've listened to any of the podcasts in the past 30 episodes or so. You have a podcast on chronic PTSD that's among the most listened to, and less than a year, a year old. Um, so a lot of hits uh, on that topic, and who knows, perhaps we'll have an encore presentation after residency I have a hunch you'll specialize in some sort of trauma fellowship before all is done yeah I, I definitely at least see myself working with patients that have been affected by trauma so yeah I think uh, it's clear that it's a passion of yours and uh, I would recommend anybody that that has the time uh, it's a nearly a, what an hour 45 roughly yeah uh, duration two hours <laughs> listen to it listen to it a little faster than uh, normal speed it goes plenty quickly, but it's a fairly complicated topic and different than PTSD, so worth listening to. Over the last week, we've talked about a couple of topics that are related to oddball substances of misuse. And in a sense, the gabapentin topic was somewhat about misuse and somewhat about use, right? It seems to be comorbid with the number of deaths associated with opiate deaths. We talked about um, we talked about loperamide and kind of the ingenuity that was used to leverage uh, CYP450 enzymes and P-glycoprotein to get loperamide into the CNS and how dangerous that was. Uh, today we're going to talk about ketamine. Now we've had a couple of, at least one podcast on ketamine and I'm not, I'm not sure we, um, I'm not sure we left with the most favorable impression. I think at the end of the podcast, my impression was reading the data that you might get a little bit of a jump start compared to antidepressants if you start with this, and perhaps it's safe in suicidality, perhaps even treats suicidality, so there's some advantage initially, but those advantages seem to disappear uh, over the space of a month. So I was hoping for more, I think, when we did that podcast. This podcast is going to not be a counterbalance to that, not to say either that uh, that ketamine is better or worse, but to say, hey, let's be careful about something here, and that is the possibility of abuse. And you're going to talk about some of the things associated with ketamine and abuse, if I understand correctly. Yeah, and I think it will be sort of a, a balancing as well. I think there's maybe more good news that um, we have to sort of report on that, and then also, some of the other things that people don't tend to talk about. Yeah, stuff I'd never heard about before. Yeah. Uh, when we're gonna, I think that's the bladder lesions that we'll talk about. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of that before. And yeah, I think you'd heard of the Olney's lesions. I had, but only last week when we when we mentioned oh. it. Then, yeah, that's the first time I'd heard of the Olney's lesions. So let's let's go ahead and, and take a look at this again. Uh, two medications have FDA approval that are ketamine or ketamine derivatives. Uh, ketamine is S-ketamine and R-ketamine, ES-ketamine and AR-ketamine. 
Uh, those are the S and R enantiomers, if I understand correctly. And the general anesthesia um, enantiomer, or not enantiomer, but uh, molecule is the receiving mixture, if I understand correctly. Yeah. Uh, what are the FDA approvals for that? Do you have that somewhere close? Yeah, so Ketalar is the name of the combined S and R enantiomer. And um, the FDA indication is for general anesthesia. So it can be um, as an inducing agent without a paralytic on board, or I think it can be a supplemental anesthetic. I think it can be used alone if the surgery doesn't require skeletal relaxation. Yeah. And, and it seems like this is a pretty important medication. Uh, one of the notes I came across said that ketamine is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medications. I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what that means? Um, I, I believe when they classify that, it's just uh, medications that have been invented that have a critical niche, would be my understanding, where something maybe doesn't fulfill that particular role better than any other way. that prototype. It is used in a lot of ways, and we're going to talk more about, I think, Spravato, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the brand name of the S-ketamine. Um, before we go there, though, I looked at the FDA indication uh, for the anesthesia, and I also looked at the warnings. And I don't know that I saw boxed warnings. I think I yeah. only saw warnings. Does that sound right? Uh, for Ketalar. Ketalar, correct. For Ketalar, the uh, racemic ketamine. And it was interesting because they talked about emergent reactions. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about how those got named, I think. <laughs> and uh, pediatric neurotoxicity if exposure is greater than three hours. And I think that's going to be, uh, we're going to follow up with that uh, later as well. Yeah. I didn't dive as heavily into Ketalar, um, right. partially because there is no FDA-approved indication in psychiatric illness. I, I think the reason I dived into it was to look at some of the unusual differences between the two medications. Uh, let's go over to Spravato then. This was approved uh, what, four or five years ago now. Uh -huh. And uh, has the FDA approval for uh, adjunctive or in conjunction with an antidepressant for treatment of depression. So yeah. it's not right, or treatment resistant depression, I should say. So it's a treatment resistant depression labeling. You definitely wouldn't pick it as a first-line agent. I think that's in part due to cost, and I think in part due to some of the concerns about diversion. Now, the FDA indications um, for depression, I think, are interesting. We have a handful of medications that have treatment-resistant depression labeling. Um, but the warnings on this are substantially different than the warnings on the R-ketamine and S-ketamine receiving mixture, which is used as an, a general anesthetic. Yeah aneurysms warning right um i don't know if i saw that as a boxed warning mm -mm. okay you just just a warning but i didn't that. see again i i looked at the box warnings and i looked at the warnings i didn't see this in the uh, ketalar warnings yeah um but it's interesting that it's it's present in the spravato warnings and i don't know why there's a difference between those two quite often when there are similar molecules those labelings seem to get closer together, not further apart. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I saw was intracranial hemorrhaging. Um, there's some hypertension worries. 
So if I can interject, mm -hmm. um, one of the concerning things about ketamine administration is transient hypertension mm -hmm. and aneurysm and intracranial hypertension or um, hemorrhage could also be side effects of something maybe like a hypertensive urgency. What I'm wondering now as I think about this, uh, somebody that would be in an operating suite using ketamine might have blood pressure monitored more constantly as opposed to maybe a, a depression treatment suite where, where somebody is receiving a nasal insufflation of ketamine. And uh, per the administration of Spravato, you're supposed to uh, um, get a blood pressure reading prior to administration and then one post-administration and then monitor the patient for at least two hours. The other, uh, so that's the, uh, that, that was one of the things I saw. The contraindications, I think, are hypertension as a result. Now, the, the warnings are uh, cognitive issues. Mm -hmm. You can't drive till the next day yeah. after you've had a good nap. You gotta sleep like eight hours at night and then the next day you can drive. Yeah. Just yes. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to maybe talk about you have to have somebody drive you home. It makes yeah. it a little more challenging to use. I didn't know where you were going to go. Yes no. works. <laughs> those, are, those are true statements. Um, so uh, if someone is receiving Spravato uh, from an approved clinician, then um, you're going to want to have those considerations in mind. Initially, when we're starting treatment, you're going to be receiving at least twice a week for about the first four weeks. That's called the um, initiation induction. phase or induction phase. Um, Maybe. Yeah, induction phase. And then following that, you can um, have a maintenance therapy of just one, times a, one time a week. But every time during that visit, you need to be monitored for at least two hours following administration. And part of that is to monitor for issues with blood pressure. And then also part of it is that it can induce dissociative events. So um, somebody thought um, who administered ketamine in a clinic is a case study that it induced psychosis, but the dissociation was so heavy that um, it almost looked like maybe um, a manic episode with psychosis. But they had noted when they reversed the ketamine that you know the patient was having any of those issues. So it's important to kind of suss that out and that could also be lead us down to maybe why this might not be such a good idea for something that you would take at home, particularly orally, um, because you really need someone to monitor ketamine. We're talking about um, something that's an anesthetic agent, so some caveats. I want to I use that as a jumping off point for the development of this molecule. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I love this story. Do you want to go ahead and tell the story of the development of ketamine? I believe you're better at telling stories, <laughs> so <laughs> if, if I have anything to add. Fair enough. So, um, developed in the 60s, and uh, I think the part that I remember most is that this molecule was used on inmates. Uh-huh near where it was developed. Now, for some reason, I thought it was in Indiana, but I think um, the notes here suggest it was Wayne in Wayne State. Wayne State University. Is that Indiana or Illinois? Um, I think it's Illinois. Uh, so in any case, um, w when they were looking at how to write the labeling for this package, uh, this um, dreaming that's common, it looks a lot like psychosis, 
right? And, I, and I've got a question for you later. I'll let you think about it now. Yeah. Dissociation appears to be the most common side effect of Spravato. How does that differ from psychosis? And why are our NMDA models, which teach us about psychosis or about schizophrenia, why is this dissociation not psychosis? Yeah. So I'll throw that out there for you to think about and let, uh, I guess, whoever might be listening to this think about that as well. So let's go back to Calvin Stevens, the professor at Wayne State who developed this. He uh, found a molecule that uh, seemed to be helpful. The, the package labeling, they were trying to figure out how to describe this, this uh, what we now call a dissociative anesthesia. And at the time they called it uh, dreaming, but I think at Park Davis and maybe at the FDA they said, yeah, we, we don't really like dreaming. Can we come up with a better name? And so I think uh, Calvin Stevens' wife... Mm-hmm. You know, she was the one who had posited the idea why don't you call it dissociation dissociative anesthesia yeah. actually it's Mrs. Edward F. Domino the wife of one of the pharmacologists working on ketamine so thank goodness we've got a note here to correct that not not the wife of, uh, of uh, Dr. Stevens who developed it now it was used uh, quite extensively in Vietnam and then uh, my impression is that this has been a medication that has developed a number of uses and it, it supplanted fencyclidine so PCP was an anesthetic before this PCP more clearly seems to cause psychosis the it, it got pulled off the market you can't do human studies anymore with PCP to look at uh, models for psychosis those were done back in the 50s I think we talked about Luby and his group doing some of these studies it's so clearly problematic for causing psychosis symptoms that it's gone, right? You can't yeah. use it anymore. I think they did a number of studies seeing if they could both induce psychosis or reverse response in treatment of schizophrenia, and they, they were able to show that it did both. There's some interesting studies looking at this, uh, the PCP activity. Maybe it's nicotinic. Maybe it's dopaminergic. Maybe it's noradrenergic. Maybe it works at the sigma receptor, which was initially thought to be one of the opioid receptors. Uh, maybe it works on NMDA receptors. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it works on all of them. But our model of schizophrenia is kind of muddied because we think about ketamine often as a uh, glutamate antagonist. Is that right? Yeah. So the story now is we had PCP. It was problematic for psychosis. We replaced that with a dissociative anesthetic called ketamine. It is not as problematic for frank psychosis, even though I think there's some case reports of that, and probably some misuse problems associated with that. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. But it seemed to be much safer. There's no energy to pull ketamine off the market. There's not energy to that I'm aware of. I didn't see anything that said we're limiting the use of ketamine in treatment of psychosis. So this is a molecule that seems to be pretty safe. Relatively speaking, yeah. If you, um, if you set aside the can't drive home stuff and that you may have reversible dissociation, so far pretty safe. And you're monitoring vitals. Monitoring vitals, risk of hypertension, things along those lines. Reasonably safe. And assuming you don't have reactions to general anesthesia, certain side effects you normally expect, nausea, vomiting, those things. If you've had issues with anesthesia, you might want to tell somebody if you're receiving 
and again, I'm not, this isn't about treatment. This yeah. is about understanding the kinds of things that were tested about on the shelf exam, right? What are the things that stick out with ketamine? Dissociative anesthetic, right? Dissociation. Yeah, I think it probably would be more likely tested on step one than step two. And it would be mechanism type questions. I don't think that don't think you're the clinical right. boards have uh, evolved to the point yet where they are. But, you know, in the, maybe the next decade, I'm sure. Who knows? They, <laughs> they get broader all the time, don't they? I don't know how you guys keep up with that. All right, so ketamine. Um, there is thought, based on some molecular activity at the, at the NMDA receptor, that NMDA molecules might be treatment for a number of psychiatric illnesses. Um, a little over a decade ago, I think there was a therapeutic an attempt to see if an M, uh, metabotropic glutamate 2 slash 3, so this is a class 2 glutamate receptor, mm -hmm. uh, could, and I think it was an antagonist, but it could have been an agonist. Don't, don't hold me to either of those. I think there were a couple of country, uh, companies, not countries, companies that were trying to develop treatment for schizophrenia based on that receptor. Uh, there was promising data until final what, phase 3 trials, and it uh, crashed. Yeah. So badly, we don't have anything with it. More recently, we have some uh, metabotropic glutamate 5 receptor molecules that were being looked at for Fragile X based on some pretty good ideas, and data shows no benefit. We've looked at a couple of other molecules for treatment of depression that have glutaminergic activity, uh, modulation. I think memantine has been looked at, not a lot of data there. Um, couple others I think have been yeah. studied and most recently we see a medication that is a combination medication that might be something there and that's the uh, are we gonna say this the right way <laughs> so it's the dextromethorphan buprenorphine combination it's obesity ability uh, so DXM and bupropion and A U V I L I T. Ability, I believe, Avelity. is how you pronounce it. But we'll wait and see if we have a farmer up from the deep south, from New England, from the Northwest, and we'll get at least three different versions of it from yeah. those folks. So we'll see how it goes. Well, so we do have at least one medication that has FDA approval for uh, glutamate activity that's putative around glutamate activity, in addition to ketamine. Yeah. But overall, lots of failures. Um, well, sort of, <laughs> is, that would be my take. Talk to me about um, it. Tell, teach me. And I believe this is kind of building a bridge between when we talked about dextromethorphan, mm -hmm. um, now with Avelity kind of on board, and then what we'll lead into tomorrow about talking about is depression, is, is it really a serotonin story? Mm -hmm. um, so I felt like that's why this sort of fits nicely in between the two. Um, what we've been able to identify is that, you know, there's a good enough response with intranasal um, S-ketamine. <laughs> Any idea what that sound is out there? <laughs> 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 there's a, go ahead though, S-ketamine intranasal. Um, <laughs> Start over. <laughs> Sigmund Freud rolling in his grave. Uh, <laughs> I don't <know. laughs> <laughs> there was a squeaking sound for those of you the, that didn't hear it. The blooper reel for the hundredth episode. Um. <laughs> Sigmund Freud rolling over his grave. <laughs> Probably true. 
Uh, so, so hold on. Let's yeah. go back to. Uh, I'm going to pull those back together very quickly if I can. Mm-hmm. You're hoping to build a bridge between the the the, the podcast tomorrow is going to talk about the serotonin hypothesis of depression, this recent article in Psychology Today that was published saying, hey, the theory is wrong, so get rid of antidepressants. Yeah, more or less is kind of what they were positing, I believe. And uh, your bridge between today and tomorrow Mm -hmm. is that intranasal ketamine seems to have a treatment of depression. Yeah. And I think you're going to go somewhere else. Uh, with that now. And now we have DXM recently approved for treatment resistant depression where we're combining um, an SSR, well, bupropion, so. Whatever that is. Similar to SSRA. Maybe more like cocaine light. Yeah, but <laughs> serotonergic at, at the very least. Well, mostly mostly uh, uh, dopaminergic. I yeah, think. dopaminergic mostly. and monominergic. Monominergic, I think. Let's yeah. leave it at that. Because it's it's the net and DAT receptor um, that it's targeting. So, so noradrenergic and dopaminergic, yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, we're more or less redu- we're removing dopamine or serotonin from that story, um, and then we're With adding yeah. DXM, which I, it may have had a little bit of serotonergic activity, but not much. It was mostly N- um, NMDA that it's targeting. So, um, and that's for treatment-resistant depression. So believe that um, we that's something we could elucidate more tomorrow but just as a so so I think the thing you're trying to say and correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. there is more than one pathway to treat depression yeah and I believe that model has been significantly reformulated far beyond saying there's any sort of deficiency in a neurotransmitter kind of believed that for a long time. Yeah. At least since uh, 2020, you have, or the year 2000, rather, um, you have a comment here mm-hmm. from the year 2000 about the discovery of the antidepressive action of ketamine in the year 2000 has been described as the single most important advance in the treatment of depression in more than 50 years. Yeah. That so seems kind of bold. I mean... <laughs> Those aren't my words, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think I, I'm qualified to make a, such a bold statement. But the fact that we have something that was FDA approved, like ketamine, for the treatment of depression is a pretty significant step. Um, I think if I was going to make a comparison when we made the transition from using MAOIs as a standard treatment or TCAs to SSRIs, that's a pretty big jump. Um, especially now when we think of SSRIs or SNRIs as first-class medications in the treatment of major depressive disorder. Does it um, feel like the same kind of jump? It, it, to me, it seemed like we moved out of the toxicity of the mm-hmm. MAOIs and the TCAs to medications that are nearly as good and much safer. In this case, it seems like we're going back a little bit in some of the risk profile and adding a different way of treating depression that isn't responding to serotonergic agents. Yeah. So, so I would say adding more than jumping, but I don't know. Yeah, and it really, it's it's kind of an adjunct, right? Because if someone is has treatment resistant depression, chances are you're keeping them on the SSRI that they responded to the best, mm-hmm. and then maybe adding ketamine to that treatment. And um, in conjunction with that, there is a hypothesis now that 
um, is advocating for getting cognitive behavioral therapy in as quick as you can because ketamine in the short term has such good data for treatment-resistant depression, whereas CBT really has evidence that shows it has sustaining... Um, uh, Sustainability to that treatment or yeah, recovery. Yeah, and enduring effects where, you know, if we can get someone responsive to ketamine and then we're able to engage them now therapeutically with CBT, strike while the iron's hot, um, and one of the caveats that we'll see with keeping someone on ketamine is that you kind of really have to keep the therapy regular. You can't, uh, can't really start it, it and then and take it off because then Very individuals much. relapse. Okay. So let's suppose that um, I walk into a clinic, all right, and I'm, I'm reporting symptoms of depression that haven't responded to uh, SSRIs, mm -hmm. SNRIs. I gained 70 pounds on uh, mirtazapine. It helped somewhat. Even trazodone was tried. I was sleepy. I went to a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and I was poorly able to manage my diet and kept having hypertensive crises. Um, at this point, you're thinking, uh, gosh, maybe we should try something else. Yeah. I, I have the option potentially of using things like RTMS, the new SAINT uh, model, which is ITM, ITMS, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, which has an FDA approval now. So two devices, ECT, vagal nerve stimulation, right? All of these would be potential treatments in, in treatment-resistant depression. And uh, so I, I go to a clinic and they say, hey, you can do all of those things, um, but I think ketamine is the right treatment for you. So walk me through what it looks like to go into a ketamine appointment on an FDA-approved pathway. Yeah. And then walk me through other strategies or other treatment modalities where ketamine is used commonly. Does that seem reasonable? Um, yeah, so I kind of broached this topic because ketamine has been used um, off-label outside of those circumstances outside of the Spravato indications. So I'll just kind of go over how we would go about it if we're assuming this patient is going to be on the FDA standardized protocol, mm -hmm. which would be the only FDA approved treatment right now that we have is intranasal um, S-ketamine. So mm -hmm. it's just that S enantiomer. And um, what you would initially be doing is having someone on a twice weekly regimen where they would come in, you would be monitoring their blood pressure. Um, and then we would administer two sprays is the equivalent of 28 milligrams of S-ketamine. So with each visit, you'd be getting somewhere between 56 milligrams or 84 milligrams. So a couple, maybe four administrations intranasally, um, and then you're doing that twice a week for at least four weeks. And each visit, you're going to have your blood pressure monitored at least pre and post visit, and then we're going to see that you don't have any dissociative events or hypertensive crises. Um, it's normal to see a systolic blood pressure raise somewhere between five to 10 milli, um, millimeters, mercury. millimeters mercury. So things like that wouldn't be concerning, but if someone has really hypertensive urgency, that could be potential contraindication. Um, so you potentially stop, or would you add a beta blocker? Would you try to keep it going? How does that work out? My understanding is that you would um, reverse the agent and then uh, if it got severe enough, then assuming uh, you would use something for hypertensive urgency or hypertensive crisis. Would you ever re 
uh, challenge ketamine if you had a hypertensive uh, episode? Um, that I'm not sure of. I'd have to look into more of the data on that. Okay. Um, and then you'd have that four-week period where it's twice a week and then four more weeks at one times a week. And then the nine-plus weeks period is kind of like the wild, wild west where we say maybe once every other week or once a week. Um, and it's kind of up to the prescriber to manage that at that point. My impression was the initial idea was this would help you in the early phase of depression. It would help you get out of the depression uh -huh. and then the uh, S-ketamine would be withdrawn. I don't think that happens in practice. Yeah. Is that, do you know anything about? So one of the things I've seen is, is the question of, okay, someone is responding well on Spravato now. Um, and if we are pulling it off, they're, they're relapsing, so do we just kind of keep it going forever? And so that has been some of the driver for saying, hey, you know, give someone Spravato when they're doing really well, at um, the, augment at the with CBT, and, and let therapy kind of do that long-lasting job. Let ketamine be part of the therapy. Um, someone who is uh, studying ketamine at Yale University was saying that it's doing a third of the work, so to speak. Okay. Um, where it's part of this, but really now we're going to be using therapy and other modalities to get someone out of that treatment-resistant depression and not relying on ketamine. And if it takes several weeks, then so be it. But we don't know, we haven't collected enough data, at least the FDA hasn't beyond a year, how that affects someone neurocognitively at these particular doses. But as we'll see with misuse and if someone's abusing it to get the dissociative effects, then you start to run into problems, especially with long-term use at high doses. The, the use of ketamine, I, I, I have some biases that I have to be very careful with with ketamine. Mm -hmm. right, so I have some biases against use of ketamine, and I don't exactly know why that is. I know that there were a lot of people that came out uh, experts in the field, that's I think a fallacy of logic, the appeal to authority, right? Um, but they came out and they said something along the lines of, hey, this, is, this wasn't a great decision by the FDA. At least that's the way I saw the headlines in some of the trade journals. When I read the data, there are things that sound pretty terrible. Like, if you give somebody ketamine, they're cognitively dinged immediately. But then I read the second half of those sentences and they say, but it pretty well cleans right up if you stay under the certain dose and keep things at kind of treatment doses. Yeah. It seems that to this point we don't have a lot of data that would suggest that the way ketamine is used in the treatment clinics would have long-lasting cognitive effects. No data yet may evolve. We don't have a lot of data that suggests cognitive impairment other than with the rapid uh, effect and then fairly rapid clearing. Yeah. Is that, am I on the right page with the cognitive uh, component of this? Yeah, and uh, what we know about long-term memory formation, I, I posted a picture that nobody can see, so that's helpful. But <laughs> <laughs> about long-term potentiation? Yeah, as a, a reminder, and um, I don't know that I was ever taught this in, in medical school. I learned it elsewhere, but part of what allows memory storage to occur in the hippocampus is MMDA channel regulated in addition to glutamate receptors, where um, there's a certain threshold that's received through the glutamate receptor, which allows the NMDA receptor to 
open, uh, displacing a magne magnesium block that's inside of it and allowing for sodium and calcium to enter into like hippocampal neurons and essentially leading to formation of long-term memory. If we're inhibiting that, it's not hard to see that maybe we'd be inhibiting CBT if it was um, attempted during the time of the therapy. Yeah, and if it's enough of a threshold, if NMDA is really the driver to why people are, um, if their depression's improving, then um, we're kind of inhibiting the memory portion of this, and, and maybe memory is more complicated than it's just the hippocampal storage. It's reorganization <laughs> of neurons elsewhere in other circuits that's or maybe we need to interrupt memory. I, I, I look at these, yeah. and, and by the way, I, I think, if you noticed, my eyes rolled in the back of my head while you were describing the process of uh, neuronal communication on this setting. It, there are so many different places. There are different receptor types, right? They're kind of grouped with the, uh, what is it, one and five seem to be grouped together in the category one, two and three are in the category two, and then uh, four, six, seven, and eight. Mm -hmm are in group three, and depending on where they are, they have different actions and affect pathways, cellular pathways at different locations, right? Different proteins that are activated. And, and so this, the, the story of glutamate and metabotropic and ionotropic receptors gets very, um, very muddy very quickly. So even though you're talking about memory and this one event, yeah. I think it's it's a, It's not as simple as I am either hyperpolarizing all the time if I use an antagonist and I'm hypopolarizing all the time if I use an antagonist. I think it's a little muddier than that. Yeah. And, and maybe I just don't understand it, but it's it's muddier to me. I think the, the broader scientific communicating is, or community is still investigating that question because there's good evidence that um, something like ketamine is... Um, it increases neurotrophic factors, therefore increasing synaptic plasticity and growth of neurons, things like BDNF and um, other things that are essentially growth factors for the brain. But then there's also evidence at a certain dose, we have m like destruction more or less. Of the neurons. Yeah, and so it's. Glutamate toxicity, I think we were taught, kind of like a glutaminergic storm, if I remember correctly and there was some thought that I believe I was taught mm -hmm. in medical school about this very toxic maybe during a delirium where it permanently affects the brain because of the toxicity of glutamate dysregulation yeah uh, hyperactivity in that case unfortunately we have a radio labeled study from Yale where they looked at um, those AMPA receptors so they radio labeled them in rats and more or less dosed ketamine in the rats and saw that you know we have decreased neurotoxicity um, as a result of ketamine and then there was another study that was performed that was radio labeled where they showed that um, they took people who were screened for major depressive disorder looked for these same types of changes um, through that radio labeled PET scan and found there are changes in the brain as these people are coming out of the depression but that's probably a better story leading into tomorrow and and why <laughs> it all comes back to tomorrow be different. <laughs> uh, so how much does it cost a month if you're getting 
two injections or two nasal insufflations twice a week. How much does that first month cost yeah. if it's not covered by insurance? So not covered by insurance is about $240 a dose. See, I thought it was a little bit higher than that, yeah. but you found better prices than I think what I saw. Um, maybe I went to GoodRx. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> what if you... Um, so, so I think when I first heard about ketamine, I was hearing these very remarkable stories about infusions of racemic ketamine in the emergency room to address suicidality because emergency room physicians had no way to, to provide a disposition to somebody that had depression. Yeah. So this was a, a need that emerged, a need that had been present for a long time and a use that was uh, off-label and yet seemed to provide you know, quite often this dramatic response. What about infusions? Tell me how um, that happens. I actually have two different threads that I wanted to address related to your question, if we could. So, um, <laughs> Knock yourself out. One, um, I'll circle back to this, but I found a meta-analysis that was done using dual um, enantiomers, so essentially what we're administering IV. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it has better data in treating depression now than the S ketamine. <laughs> the S ketamine was shown to have better NMD um, activity, uh-huh. so inhibition there, but also tends to be more dissociative. So it's if NMDA is the true player in the story, then it seems like we're getting more of the bad with the good. However, um, what's interesting about the label too with S ketamine for FDA approval is that it says it's FDA approved for the depressive symptoms of suicide, which, um, as I understand it, suicide can exist as its own psychiatric disorder where someone is suicidal, but they don't necessarily have symptoms of major depressive disorder. And so I think there's a question of if we take ketamine in those particular subset of patients, would it have any effect? so I thought I looked at the labeling today, and I think that uh-huh. there, I thought the labeling was for treatment-resistant depression. Yeah. But I think so there's two. There's two, but I think there's also specific language that speaks to, I think the second, the second approval came for uh, suicidality, but you're saying it's yeah. for symptoms of depression associated with suicidality. So it's like, if someone's depression is bad enough, then it's a risk factor for, for suicidal suicide. ideation, right? But there's also um, this risk of how do you treat somebody that's suicidal yeah. immediately, and I think this evolved as a, uh, I think, I, I think when we looked at the data, we weren't as compelled that there was an immediate suicide response with the esketamine, and I think um, it seemed different than the case reports of the surprising recoveries, and the firsthand reports of the surprising recoveries that you hear about with people that are giving the infusions of the racemic ketamine. So yeah. I, I don't know I don't know what's there. I don't know what's real with all of that. And I do think that I think to that extent I don't know that anybody does. But. Oh that's <laughs> well that's probably true. I'm sure there are people that know a lot more about it than I do. I, I think my point is and I, I think it got lost a little bit. I think my point is this. Our original experiences with ketamine, and by ours I mean the people that were using this in the emergency rooms, seem to be one of a rapid reversal of suicidality and improvement of mood. When you look at the data, these highly, like, these trials that were well-funded and done quite well, 
I think one of the trials was actually negative. It didn't really show a lot of difference from antidepressants because I think that was the comparator agent. And then two other trials seemed to show some uh, rapidity and recovery over SSRIs. But that, uh, that advantage was gone, I think, in a month or so, right? Um, so, so those were the pivotal trials for one of the approvals. But the suicide question itself, I think is that approval, and I'd have to look at the PI again to, mm -hmm. to have that exactly right, but that approval for suicidality, I thought was for, I thought the idea was that where our, our antidepressants have labeling that speaks to the risk of suicide, yeah. right? You, you say that this molecule seems to be safer in that setting, even though it still has that box warning about the risk of suicidal thinking that is a class warning for anything that treats depression, right? So, um, so, so that's the part that kind of, I, I get hung up a little bit in all of the, those things and the, the differences that seem to have been expressed in the hands of people that use those medications. So is your question, why is the FDA approvals for something like Spravato, uh, the box warnings are different than, say, something like... Well, I think it's the same. I think it has yeah. a class warning. I think it's the same. But I think the FDA approval for the, the, the second indication... Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe they took the box warning away with the second PI. I think I looked at the first PI, and that's my problem, right? Because they had the first indication that came out for treatment-resistant depression. Then they had the second that came out for the suicide part of this, yeah. right? And so, so my question is, um, uh, my question is lost now. <laughs> my, my question is, uh, I th no, I think it's more of a statement, and that is that... Um, it seems that it addresses in part the boxed warning associated with SSRIs. That's the statement, right? That was the goal, I think, of this medication, to have a treatment that was safe in severe depression where you might have either suicidality or emergent suicidality that does seem to be associated infrequently with antidepressants, SSRIs, particularly, and then given a class warning to all other yeah. antidepressants. I think that's um, what I'm trying to say and haven't said it well yet. And in the boxed warning regarding that um, for Spravato is tiered towards adolescents and young adults. So increase suicidality in those individuals. And it didn't go away in the, in the, and that's the PI that has both the indications? Yeah. For the treatment resistant depression. Then do you mind? Uh, um, yeah, I could pull that up. If you can see the uh, second indication, I think that would be helpful. So um, if you want to get the infusion, not FDA approved, not and an antiemer, you can have the infusion. I assume you watch the same things that you might watch during general anesthesia. But you also have some things listed here speaking to treatment of depression using the S and antiemer that is not FDA approved and they're giving like 150 milligram IM dose. Is that um, what they're doing? Well, so you can give essentially IV ketamine as an IM dose though I don't know that people are necessarily doing that. So I'm as I look further, apparently they take this syringe with the 150 milligrams and put it in water. Yeah, so we're taking the equivalent and using it as an oral medication. Some of the caveats with using ketamine orally is that it's poorly bioavailable, and ketamine at sufficient doses is hepatotoxic. Um, so I guess where I'd say where this becomes a story of like the wild wild west is you can acquire oral s-ketamine so just the s and antimer 
online, more or less. Um, you know, similar to now we have testosterone clinics popping up and ketamine clinics popping up, but these are oral ketamine. It's not even FDA indicated or approved. Um, and then people are using doses of somewhere around 150 milligrams. And then saying, hey, you can do this in the comfort of your home without all the uh, caveats that we had described earlier, you know, things that you really need to have monitored. So that induces not only the liability if it is therapeutic, but it also introduces the question of are we achieving therapeutic efficacy? And it also strikes the presumption that this as a monotherapy is efficacious on its own. You know, you're not coming in to see a therapist or a psychiatrist to get regular CBT treatment. We definitely um, don't have randomized controlled trials on this. Yeah. Okay. And of course, even outside of that, it's problematic, right? I mean, I remember Rhett in the podcast on uh, psychedelics, one of the first ones we did. I think Rhett was cautiously optimistic about the idea that psychedelics might have a niche somewhere in treatment of, of either anxiety, substance use, or depression. It looks like some of that's panning out. But he also made an interesting statement, which was essentially, I, I hope this isn't the opioid crisis again. Ketamine is not, um, I, I think it would, it's not like PCP, you don't quite get the same kind of effect out of it pretty obviously right mm -hmm. it's it's not really like our um, hallucinogens that are being tested in treatment of depression it's somewhere kind of in the middle and yet it is abused yeah is it the dissociation that people are seeking and, and when I say abused it is used outside of medical indication I think yeah. it's better language to describe that yeah so abuse using it to chase some sensation of euphoria or um, a use that it's not indicated for something recreational whereas misuse would be you're receiving it but you're not using it appropriately for a therapeutic effect would you agree with that yeah I, I think it's uh, outside of the prescription of the physician um, and, and even I don't know perhaps medications are sought after that are given with a, a subscription subscription yeah <laughs> prescription prescription and with that prescription it's still uh, there might be uh, inaccurate reporting of symptoms to get that, so I, I suppose that would still be misuse. But if you're using mm -hmm. it to achieve something other than the FDA-approved and intended effect that's uh, agreed on, upon between the provider and the consumer, I suspect that's a, the best description of misuse. To me, it's at the very least an ethical gray area because it's making promises that I don't know can be delivered, and it's doing it at exorbitant fees, and... As physicians, I believe the number one thing we always assume, if you're not going to help somebody, at least don't hurt them, um, <laughs> which I don't think is a promise you can make with oral ketamine. I, I think it's easy to worry about uh, this type, type of a clinic that shows up without face-to-face -face services. And I think, I think those are being, uh, I've noticed in the trade journals that there's a little bit more aggressive pursuit of those those companies so hopefully they don't stick around whether it's life-saving or not it's always harder to to know right in a sense money talks it does seem like a pretty high fee for something that's fairly inexpensive when we were buying ketamine in the past uh, I think you could buy quite a bit for not very much money I think the price has gone up I think there's a lot more use out there uh, so so I'm 
I try to have, even though I try to practice with the best data possible, there's that little nagging thought in the back of my mind all the time. It, either it works or there's something about this that's drawing people in. Is the thing that draws people in desperation? If it's desperation, it's because we haven't fixed it, right? We yeah. as physicians that are in the neighborhood that you can talk to, that you can have a an interaction with, right? And I think most patients will seek that out. So if, if patients are going somewhere else, then it, it might say something about us as well. Um, but I'm, I'm not really pushing back against that because it seems a little dark gray, not just a little gray. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, probably being conservative for yeah. hopes that you would agree and then we could both agree that it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not a good thing. It seems really, really <laughs> concerning to me. Yeah. Um, I do want it to, I, I think we have, uh, I think you're late for work in like eight, eight minutes. Um, yeah, I could keep going for a couple minutes here. <laughs> All right, so what I want to do is I want to talk just very, very briefly. We've talked about IV ketamine might have some benefits for depression. I think the story of uh, glutamate receptors, uh, AMPA receptors, kinate receptors, sigma receptors, monoamine receptors, I, I don't think the story is as clear as we would like it to be as physicians who want things in a neat little box that we can identify quickly on the shelf exam, right? Yeah. I, th I think that's maybe the take home of a lot of what we've talked about so far. Now I want to shift gears just a little bit. There are a couple of things that are problematic when these medications are used in a way outside of the labeling. For example, this seems to be fairly dangerous for fetuses mm -hmm. and maybe young children. Talk to me about those risks. Um, I was meaning to get to that paper. <laughs> so let me talk to you about those right. risks then. So it looks like there are some pretty significant problems associated with uh, pregnancies. In fact, there was an article that um, that was put out that said essentially, and I, I don't think this was a high quality article, I, in fact I wondered a little bit if it was uh, one of the paper mill articles that we had run across, it said essentially we need better treatments for pregnant women. And it kind of started off like ketamine's you know, not all that great, but as it went through all the not so greats it kind of said but that's not really the full story, and it's probably not all that bad, right? <laughs> and, except for pregnancy, and it looks like this is uh, toxic to embryos mm -hmm. and developing children. Uh, these Olney's legions, O-L-N-E-Y-S legions, I think is what happens in pediatric patients. So if you have this medication for more than three hours in pediatric patients, you're at risk. Generally speaking, this is a, a, a substance that seems to cross the blood-brain barrier quickly and then clears fairly quickly after that. Whether the effects clear or not seems to be a slightly different thing. Uh, does that sound right up to that point? Do you know how they were administering it? With the children? I don't know, but I, what I read was exposure for more than three hours. And the other thing I don't know is I didn't see that warning in the ketamine use, or the ketamine package insert, but I did see it in the Spravato. So the, uh, our, what is it, not R-ketamine, the Ketalar. Yeah. I, I didn't see it in the Ketalar package insert, but I did see it in the Spravato package insert. So, so I think there's some things that I don't understand about those risks for pregnancy, but if you're using this medication, you better be checking uh, birth control and also you better be looking at uh, pregnancy, whether it's already in place. This isn't a, a medication yeah. you use lightly in pregnancy. And I would say, I mean, is it fluoxetine that's really the only proven SSRI in pregnancy that we have where we can say there's little fetal risk? I, I think the experience with uh, fluoxetine is that there's very limited risk. Yeah. It, it, it appears, I think there have been, 
uh, presentations I've been at where the data was unpublished and compelling that the risk of depression was probably worse than uh, the medication effect. And I think it's hard to say that there would be no effect, but it's hard to know, right? Yeah. Very, very difficult to know. So I, I think, unfortunately for those patients, you would probably be ramping up the ladder quickly to, uh, I mean, if you have access maybe to TMS. Or but potentially ECT, right? Yeah, ECT, yeah, of the, course, is the gold standard anyways. So. Yeah. Or maybe ITMS now with this yeah. new emerging technology. Um, the next thing I think we need to tackle fairly quickly is the issue of chronic use um, in diversion. Right, so if you have somebody that is getting their hands on ketamine mm -hmm. outside of the typical pathway, more than a physician would prescribe and is using it um, outside of the approved dosing, what kinds of things do you see? So I've actually, I've witnessed a misuse type scenario where a patient was, was taking S-ketamine orally um, for in, uh, a condition that really didn't have an indication for that as a treatment. Um, so I'd say in those circumstances, we kind of have to evaluate the situation um, with this information in mind and make an informed decision about is it appropriate for them to switch to something like Spravato at that point mm -hmm. if they have one of the indications. Uh, the other concern is if taken at high enough doses, we worry about certain toxicity effects. You had mentioned Olney's lesions as a, as a potential possibility. It seems like there's... Um, th this might show up, but really only in chronic use. Yeah. Chronic use, high dose use. So what I read was about a gram per day, which we would consider to be a pretty high dose. And it seems to be a more common phenomenon in certain Asian populations. We're not currently seeing an epidemic of uh, ketamine misuse in the United States. But as this is essentially, I don't know if it's hit the apex of popularity, but it's certainly ballooned in, in popularity. That might be something as patients are unable to afford these things that they're misusing oral escatamine. So that's a consideration where these lesions can occur in the brain where there's um, neuronal atrophy, or I should say just, you know, you could have glial cell or neuronal atrophy. just regions of the brain. And then these holes, these only lesions, only's, only's, O-L-N-E-Y-S, I think, right? Yeah. And these lesions. Uh, apostrophe S. Yeah. O-L-N-E-Y-S. And it was, they were actually discovered decades ago, so it's kind of surprising. Um, I'm assuming because ketamine has been around for almost A long time now. 60 years now. So it's... 70? Almost 70? Yeah, 1950s, so I can't do math. But <laughs> it's in the 70s, closing it on the 70s in any case. Uh, the, the, uh, it looks like this is the one thing that is not reversible. Yeah. Uh, well, sort of. There's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's another thing that's not reversible, yeah. or, or it may be reversible. So um, urinary toxicity is something that can occur with ketamine. Um, I'm assuming abuse at this point where people are taking high doses for such a long period of time. And I think that language has changed to misuse now than abuse. Um, the only reason I use that is I believe that it's people who are chasing the dissociative symptoms. I think they uh -huh. still use misuse in that case. Okay. I think that's the new language. We'll look at it. Okay. After this. Um, <laughs> before so, you go to work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, symptoms can range from cystitis, which is can be hemorrhagic cystitis, hydronephrosis, 
uh, frequent urination dysuria. And of course, with this bloody urination that's occurring, the mechanism seems to be that there's apoptosis of cells inside of the bladder wall. And so you're literally shedding the bladder. If this builds up to an extent, then you get um, essentially at a stage where you have to have a transplant. I mean, there's medications in the interim that appear to have some effect, like NSAIDs, anticholinergics, tramadol even has some evidence, but at a certain stage, we're talking about a bladder transplant. Up to that point, fully reversible. Yeah. That's the part that kind of surprised me, is that it's largely rever largely reversible if you catch it earlier enough. So I, yeah. I suppose that somebody would have to be urinating blood for quite a while for this to be past that point of no return. You're nodding yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I guess you almost have to wonder if somebody has poor access to health care at that point. If you're urinating blood, that's usually a symptom that brings most patients in, I feel like. But then maybe they're worried about things other than ketamine. So that was one of the things I wanted to bring to people's attention is this is something that can happen. Whether it's common here, not so much right now, but... In Asia so far. Uh, we, we did talk about, you, you threw out a lot of different things about depression and some of the molecular activity about it. I think we were going to look at that on a more like uh, cohesive way now. I think you put those things out there enough yeah. that we don't have to, to go back over that unless you desperately want to. <laughs> I'd not, say, not dextromethorphanly want yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you can almost dextromethorphanly go over it because it seems to have some evidence in treating depression. So um, Through the, that uh, glutamate receptor. Or so we, we believe it's modulating the glutamate receptor activity, right? And, Potentially, yeah. And also possibly contributing to synaptic plasticity, which it appears ketamine does based off of the imaging that we've been able to acquire. Um, and that does appear to be a short-lived effect, too, which we've seen demonstrated with the ketamine dosage. Also, you know, the quick return to symptoms of depression with, with stopping therapy. And that's and you're talking about dextromethorphan with that? Um, specifically ketamine. Okay. But with oh. the approval of dextromethorphan now as this new treatment-resistant depression modality, it likely has a similar mechanism. We'll be looking at it, won't we? Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there's a podcast on the emerging use of Alberita? Alberita? Ability. Ability. Good <laughs> grief. Hopefully, if nothing else that I've done from the past two weeks, I've opened a floodgate for you to explore this new avenue. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully so. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to add? Just that Batman's better than Superman. That's really it. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. All right. My take home is this. Glutamate receptors remain a mystery to me. I know there's five or more now. Five was the unsuccessful trial with Fragile X. I think there's a few more past that now. The treatments looking at modulating glutamate receptors seem to have largely um, been unsuccessful, and yet there are a few medications that have uh, peaked through. Memantine, for example, dextromethorphan and pseudobulbar uh, affect. Uh, the avelity? Avelity? 
Availability. And treatment of treatment-resistant depression, ketamine and treatment-resistant depression, and with the suicide indication rate. So there's a handful that have peaked through, and, and I do hope that at some point not only A, can I figure out uh, the difference between the ionotropic and the metabotropic and where they're working in the brain, right? So it's pathways and activity. Um, but I'm also hoping that I have a better sense of how that circuitry might fit with monoamines. And, and the other thing that I'd like to understand better, and, and these are my take-homes obviously, my take-home is I don't understand well enough. <laughs> um, there seems to be this unusual overlap uh, between the sigma receptor, which was thought to be uh, an opiate receptor, and some of the glutamate receptors, and some of the antipsychotic, I'm sorry, some of the glutamate agents, and some of the antipsychotic medications, like clozapine seems to have clozo, uh, uh, sigma receptor activity, and maybe Luvox, antidepressants. So there's a lot of different molecules that have some crossover with this molecule, and I'd like to understand that crossover better. I'd like to understand why some uh, medications that seem to have largely monoamine activity also have glutaminergic activity and vice versa, right? Because I think PCP, which has a great deal of glutaminergic activity, also has a surprising amount of uh, dopamine activity. Maybe not meaningfully therapeutic, but it's there. At yeah. least that's what some of the articles said, right? Yeah, and I think you bring up an interesting point. We have multiple other MMDA receptor antagonists, memantine, uh, lenosimine, um, I'm not going to try that one, <laughs> rizlemidaz, <laughs> rapacinel, things I've never seen in practice, and 4-chloro, um, kinurinine, close enough. Kinurinine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there's this kinine thing that's out there too in schizophrenia, I think, kyurene. Mm -hmm. Um, and, are, and are these molecules that are other they kind target. of exploratory molecules or, or um, ligands for imaging or medications that might be on the horizon? I think some of them are, are used uh, outside of the U.S., okay. if, with the exception of amantine, of course. Okay. Um, and those also target, target NMDA, but we don't see very strong efficacy for the treatment of depression. So I believe that opens another avenue of why this and not this um, and of course you had brought up receptor density and pathways you know, where, where the molecule is matters what, one last thing I think mm -hmm. that was interesting for me um, I, I, I'm routinely baffled by what the National Health Service does in Great Britain it seems to me sometimes that they're looking for ways to uh, say that expensive medications really have no benefit in treatment um, whether it's true or not, I don't know. I don't know if that's just one of my biases, one of my implicit biases, right? Um, but they had this article. They 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 were lead authors, um, two papers. One looking at bipolar de depression uh, in a, a Cochrane review, and a second Cochrane review paper looking at depression treatment with glutaminergic uh, agents. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't find anything out about the lead author other than that maybe she is a was a research coordinator for a number of years and might be in her first year of what might be the equivalent of a doctorate. Um, I didn't know what to make of that. I looked through the list. I also saw one fellow who's writing these reviews that say, well, may, maybe there's some benefit to ketamine, right? Yeah. And uh, clearly not to anything else. And I think that's probably pretty standard. But this is a guy that owns a patent on a medication that is in study for treatment of depression as well. That is, uh, I think it's inositol monophosphatase, 
I remember correctly, it's a, one of, an inhibitor of that enzyme. Mm -hmm. And so this guy has skin in the game. So I, I, I wasn't sure what to believe on some of the things I'm reading. I think there's a lot of invested interests in this topic still. I remain very skeptical overall. So I, th I think those are my take-home points. Yeah. I think it's important that illustrates that you can't get away with reading the abstract to <laughs> <laughs> anybody who's presenting any type of research. Um, you know, dig a little deeper and make sure there's not any type of agenda. Of course, everybody, we all have unconscious biases, which you can't really identify. But when there's a clear motivating incentive, then you got to be a little suspicious in interpreting someone's message. Yeah, which was also interesting because even though he has a competing molecule, yeah, he's also the guy in charge of the ketamine clinics for NHS. Double dip. <laughs> Except for he's not, it wasn't like he was super selling it either. I mean, it was a very kind of like, uh, yeah, maybe you know. like bet more on the horse <laughs> that wins the races and <laughs> hedge your bets. I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I left reading his interests completely baffled after I, I spent about a half an hour trying to figure out who the lead author was. So, um, so uh, just as <laughs> aside to that, I, I was looking into DXM's efficacy in, in depression. Um, so this research showed that DXM with bupropion versus bupropion, um, there's a change in the MADRS score over six weeks that showed a relative risk change of negative 13.7 for combined therapy versus negative 8.8. .8. So that's almost... It's almost 50% more. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, one of the things we do know about dextromethorphan, if you talk to the guys that prescribe a lot of... Uh, um, quinidine and dextromethorphan, which is for pseudobulbar affect, you'll hear those guys talk about frequent manic switches. And there, at least in my mind, there seems to be a correlation between antidepressant activity and the possibility of a manic switch. Yeah. So, so I think, I think there's, there's not a real surprise here that dextromethorphan might improve mood and treat depression. Yeah. So that, um, this, this seems like somebody's going to make some money on this idea. Yeah. And I guess uh, my point in, in bringing that up, too, is if it, an MDA is the big story or if there's a similarity with DXM and, and ketamine, then saying that ketamine doesn't work, well, we have evidence that, you know, a similar related substance has demonstrated efficacy, which... And I'm shaking my head. I don't know. I'll let them make of uh, that what they want, too. Yeah, we'll make the uh, people that understand the... Uh molecular aspects of this do the work on it for us. I think, I think I've said okay. enough. I've made you late enough for work. I sincerely apologize. Um, and I know Batman rules. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my, my take home would be to exercise caution. I feel like maybe I say that too much, but I wouldn't get overly excited with this, but I wouldn't also completely clear it off the table as something that's worthless. Um, yeah. I tend to see the benefits of combining this with something like CBT and, and taking advantage of being able to engage better with patients therapeutically. And I feel like that is generally where most medications in psychiatry appear to shine, is they allow us to, I kind of think of it as decreasing the resistance or the barrier. Um, you know, it's easier to help somebody when you facilitate their environment and circumstances versus if you told someone, you know, don't be anxious, and <laughs> and you hold them over a cliff, and you say, well, don't be anxious, or you had the option of keeping them in a nice, quiet environment and 
you know, I have re- relaxing music playing, which would you pick, you know? So, <laughs> and of uh, course, I think we would say, how can I help you not be anxious? Yeah. Or, or how, how do you, on your own, avoid anxiety? Even a better question, right? How do you solve it? Yeah. As opposed to having me solve it. Uh, all right, we better stop here. You and I have a tendency to keep talking. Uh, <laughs> right. For those of you that listen through this, key take-homes. Uh, ketamine has an abusable potential. It looks like it has some risks cognitively for, and I said abusable, misusable potential. It looks like it has risks for cognitive lesions, potentially only lesions. It looks like the risks of uh, action in adolescence are fairly high and need to be monitored very closely. Hypertension is an issue that needs to be monitored during the two hours that somebody's there. And p- perhaps this is a medication that provides a treatment for depression that an SSRI would not provide. Yeah, uh, it, it's a pathway that we have open up to us to provide treatment, and the cost of that treatment, despite ketamine being relatively inexpensive, seems to be quite high, and goes into some of those gray areas. So watch diver- for diversion, watch for hemorrhagic cystitis, watch for strange bladder, bladder complaints in your patients because they might be having issues with uh, diversion of the substance. And uh, also got to monitor for sedation and dissociation as well as monitor for that. Yep. And anything else I missed? Um, no, it's actually a box warning that this has the potential for abuse slash misuse on the label. So So it's there in big, bold letters. Yeah. <laughs> the, the three being risk of suicide, abuse, misuse, and risk of sedation and dissociation are the, the box warnings on it. Perfect. So. Then on that note, we'll stop and get you on your way to work. Team out. Team out. <laughs>